0: Hello everybody, welcome back to Not Safe for Wonks. I'm Kennedy Cooper, and we've also got April here co-hosting today and joining us we have John. They are one of the members of Harmony Party UK, and we've been really interested to speak with them about forming a third party in the UK. Obviously, we've talked to a lot of people that have formed third parties or are trying to form third parties here in the United States. And, uh, you know, there's some similarities, some differences, and uh, we just wanted to kind of get into all of it with you and uh, get to know a little about you. So thank you so much for joining us, John. Thank you for having me on. It's,
1: it's a pleasure to be on.
0: For those of you out there who, you know, are listening to this and have no idea what Harmony Party UK is, have no idea about the work that you're doing, would you want to just give a brief introduction to yourself and the party?
1: Yeah. So Harmony is a consensus-led political party. We're a flat organization. We have no leaders. Technically on paper, I'm currently in the position which the Electoral Commission in the UK, which regulates political parties, says is the leader role. But that's just like a diplomatic role in our party. So it's my job to go out and talk to people like this. (laughs) Um, I don't don't lead at all. Everything is decided by the members, but crucially, not just by the members, because we, we have an interesting three phase democracy. So essentially what it is, is we're divided up into lots of assemblies and each assembly is focused either geographically or on a particular topic. So there's the Disability Activism Society, for example, who focus on disability issues and disability rights. But how an assembly makes decisions and how all of the assemblies autonomously make decisions is they use this three phase system. So initially you have informal discussion. So Steve says, shall we do this? And everyone says, yeah, so that's it. The decision's made. That's um, great. If, someone says, if someone says that's a bad idea, we can't do that. Then if everybody else says, well, we think we could, then you move into formal debate and then that's a structured, organized discussion on the topic and everyone brings their ideas to the table. The chair tries to sort of bring a compromise out of it. If no compromise is made, if you've no consensus is reached, then we fall back to a ballot system. And for that, we use the star ballot, which I don't know if you know what it is. It's score the automatic runoff and it's a 2 phase system. So you pick more to five for each option. And then in the first round, the winner is the one with the most score and in the second round the two top candidates are pitted against one another and whichever wins on the most ballots is the winner it tends to pick like it picks the decision you didn't know you wanted it's like flipping a coin and you go ah oh, suddenly i realize i want that but the real beauty of the system is is after we ballot if we decide we don't like it we can restart the system immediately and all just immediately change the decision that's
0: fantastically flexible and uh, definitely speaks to a lot of the kind of systems that i personally like best and think we should be moving towards i have a little bit of experience with consensus-based decision making myself and i find that one of the biggest misconceptions that people have about it is that it's it's much slower than other forms of decision making but i think that if you look around um, liberal republican democracy type governments aren't really necessarily moving at a light speed most of the time um how do you feel about like the pace of consensus-based decision making do you think like are there like certain things you have to like really watch for to avoid getting bogged down or is it generally pretty smooth
1: so i I think it's pretty smooth i think that the reason we have the three-phase system is to prevent things from going on for too long. So if, if, if we just get completely jammed, we go to a vote. And that sometimes we'll restart the process again, and it will mean the debate will continue, but we now understand our own positions better. And I think that the, on the speed issue, sometimes things are very slow, but that's not actually a bad thing. I think a good example is, our, is development of policy. We've been developing policy for just under a year now. We don't have a huge amount of it, and that's because policy is very complex and it takes a lot of time to talk it out. You have to include all the right voices in the room. You have to include the people it affects. And so you should be taking your time. You don't want to make those decisions quickly. But at the same time, for, for example, for writing statements, for doing media work, collaborative work is very quick and people are very much on the same page. And when you all have the same goal, there's it's actually very easy to come to a decision quickly. So I think it speeds things up dramatically in some senses.
2: And I think to boot, the thing with the time wasting that goes on in a lot of parliamentary democracies, um, sort of representative democracies, is that the slow deliberation doesn't change anyone's minds. It's almost entirely just process. But with this sort of consensus model, if you're slower, and you take your time, you better develop the participants viewpoints, the viewpoints of the group, and you come to a, a much richer understanding, whereas the understanding is almost exactly the same after like three months of tense negotiation over a bill in the House of Representatives or the House of Commons, or what have you, and sort of moving forwards, how did the how did harmony party start? If you could kind of regale us with that story?
1: So it started with mutual aid. I started a mutual aid organization called the Symbol Society originally. Symbol still exists, but it's gone on the back burner a little bit, and we're sort of discussing taking it international, so Symbol's role will be to basically inform people about the flat model that we're using. But it started out with mutual aid. There was a strike in my town, oh actually nationwide, by the uh, university and college union. And they were striking because of precarity. And so because I had a friend who was taking part in the strike, I decided that something had to be done regarding food because many of the people who were striking were missing a meal each day. In terms of loss of income, because there was a strike fund and they were supported, but it didn't fully support them. So I rotted up some soup and I got hold of a stove and I went up to the picket line and I cooked soup for them every day. And I got talking to people about politics while I was there. And the thing that they kept saying was, when can we vote for you? And this is quite funny because I'm historically I'm an anarchist and I don't really believe in voting. I mean, I do it uh, because it's sort of it's better to vote and take part and have had a say than not. And I've been an activist around elections, but I don't—I never really believed in the system. But I sort of abruptly realised that doing mutual aid as part of the political process could build communal trust.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think um, I consider myself an anarchist, but I vote sometimes. And the reason is because I see the need for harm reduction. I think a lot of people, you know, can kind of understand that, especially I think if you've lived in poverty or been around poverty, you can kind of understand that, you know, the consequences of these votes and things, they're real. And even if it's not perfect to engage with the system, sometimes it's just worth it because people's lives are on the line.
1: Yeah, that's, that's really a key thing with harmony as well. One of the, the core doctrines of the party is that instead of being utilitarian and saying, let's make the most number of people happy, our approach is something called um, suffering-focused ethics. In suffering-focused ethics, you, you try to reduce suffering first. So if if there is a problem, then you don't look at it in terms of how we can make the most number of people happy, because then there's a small number of people who are unhappy. Instead, you say, how can we make the unhappy people stop being unhappy? We can focus on making them happy later, right? Once they're not suffering.
0: Yeah, that's really well said. Absolutely. Um, so let's talk a little bit about building an org. We've talked with a lot of people on this show that have started orgs from scratch. So you are out there, you're putting the word out there and people are responding to it positively. How do you take that from like a few people nodding and saying, yeah, to an actual organization that has meetings, a charter takes in donations in excess enough to, you know, fund its activities, etc.
1: I think that depends on the kind of organization you have. For us, we've been figuring it out as we go, because for a start, we began during the pandemic, like literally right in the middle of the pandemic. We've done no physical organizing. None of the party members, other than those who already knew each other, have ever met each other. So we're sort of a strange beast because we're we're built entirely on trust and we're telling people to trust each other more. So I guess we're exemplifying it. But it's been very difficult to build the organization up because people come into it expecting to be told what to do, to be told... Where they need it, and instead they're actually just able to fit themselves in wherever they want. And how we've gone about that is we've we have a a thing called the moot. It's where socialists moot ideas, so seemed like a good name. And on the moot, you have different areas, and we just literally let people walk in and pick up in the conversation. And I think that open door policy has enabled the structure to just be. A thing that people insert themselves into so instead of of me or anybody going out there and and putting people into this structure and saying you fit here and you fit here people have been walking in and finding where they fit and carving out space for themselves
0: you mentioned the importance of trust building i think that societally we here in the united states and i imagine you might feel similarly from what you're saying in the UK, uh, I think that societally, we are lacking in trust for just like the sort of common person around you. I think that like there's a lot of intentional sort of media sandbagging and propaganda that has been done to convince you that you you, you don't know who your neighbors really are and things of that nature. And I personally find that stuff to be really challenging to overcome in organizing. What are some of the ways that you've found most effective for like getting past people's paranoia of stepping into a type of trust that is generally kind of unnatural for our capitalist society?
1: Um, I think it's going to sound very corny, but I think being unrelentingly lovely is kind of core in some ways. And I don't, mean, I don't mean just being nice. I mean, if somebody says that they're upset, then you offer support. If somebody says that they have a need, you try to fill that need if you can. And when you give people trust, Trust is the result of people seeing that you, you have belief in them. So when you give people belief, they give you trust back.
2: Very good way of putting it. Very good way of putting it. And um, now what are your goals moving forward for the party? And what are, you, what are you hoping to do with it in, say, one, five, a couple of years?
1: So we have a kind of sliding scale of ambition. It sort of depends on how we hit targets. But for example, for the next year, our goal is to produce our first manifesto out of the election, That's the general election that will be coming up in 2024 on paper, but might be earlier. Probably it will be next year or the year after. We intend to make a splash at that election as big a splash as we possibly can and we intend to set up mutual aid networks nationwide as well and also to hook in with pre-existing ones offer support offer organizational aid offer digital communication platforms we want to produce in-house anything that we need to reach those goals but then we also want to provide that tech to other people so everything that's ours will be the communities as well and that's sort of a core goal because bringing it back to trust that's sort of how you earn trust is by giving to the community and we think that the more we give to the community the more the community will be willing to trust us and believe that we have their best interests at heart and it will become harder and harder for like the career politicians if you like to point at us and say ah they have ill intentions when in fact what we're doing is radically changing british politics and one of the core ways we can do that is through our structure itself so those geographical assemblies I mentioned earlier they will be set up all across the UK they already are sort of we have regional assemblies for all of the UK already with a a small number of people in but those regional assemblies will make local people accustomed to having a place where they can air like in a forum their ideas and views and because harmony is an open democracy you don't have to be a party member to join in and that will radically change local politics in particular because our local councillors parish council members and so on and so forth once we have them elected, they will be directly accessible. You'll just walk into the assembly and say, look, the street lights aren't working on my street. I want it fixed. And if everybody in the assembly agrees with you, your local councillors just have to do it because that's what the party rules say they have to do. And when they came in, they agreed to that. They believed in that. So we should be able to really, really move Britain's democracy in a different direction without ever having to legislate. And I think that's quite exciting.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I I love the ideas behind it. But let's get a little more into the ideas behind all of this. I'm curious about you, John. Were you always a sort of left leaning person? Or was there a particular journey that brought you toward the sort of anarchic place that you seem to relatively be at now?
1: So when I was seven years old, I read a book by an American author, Kim Stanley Robinson, called Red Mars. And I read the two sequels, Green Mars and Blue Mars, and I'm not afraid to say that they absolutely radicalized me. And I'm particularly taken with the manner in which the revolution occurred on Mars in those stories. It was not a revolution of of blood, even though there was a violent revolution that occurred. That violent revolution failed both times, I think, actually. But the actual eventual revolution was just people realizing that they don't need permission to change society. We just collectively have to decide to do it. And it's done. And that was was a powerful message, even when I was seven years old. Something about it resonated with me, and I went back to those books all through growing up. And later I added other theory from other writers, far too many to count, honestly, or name. But bringing it all together, I think I've always been very left-wing because of that that early exposure to uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's work.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, uh, there's definitely a lot of very radicalizing sci-fi out there. And that's definitely the Mars trilogy has to be towards the top of the list, just in terms of uh very openly radical, but without sort of shoving politics completely down your throat. Very interesting story. That's that's really fascinating that at the age of seven, uh you you read your first radical texts.
2: Yeah. I haven't much heard heard much about the the Mars trilogy. What is uh uh, what's kind of what it's about and the um, radical stuff in it, if you don't mind?
1: Well, it's, in broad terms, it's about how we are formed by the land we live on as much as we form the land that we live on so it's it's about the relationship between human and land and it's about the relationship of human to human as well it, at core it's about a hundred people who go to mars to found a colony and they live very very long lives because about halfway through their lives a treatment called the gerontological treatment is invented and that lets people live when it's first invented they believe to be a thousand years old that turns out to be a bit ambitious but people live to 300 years old quite easily by the end of the book. It's about these hundred people and their relationships to each other. And it's it's basically actually just about that. But everything else explodes out of that. And particularly the... There's a scene on the way to Mars in the Red, Red Mars book, which is, is probably the most radicalizing thing of all, in, in, in my opinion, when they're in, the, uh, they're in a, a solar radiation shelter because there's been a solar flare. And Arkady Bogdanovich is a Russian cosmonaut who's on the journey because it's half Russian, half American with some Europeans mixed in. And he just, he basically says, let's throw all the plans out the window and build a new society. And it sets the cat amongst the pigeons in a very interesting way. And it it, it actually establishes the patterns that happen all through the story from there on out, which is a a really interesting and a sort of powerful thing in in that these social moments in in groups are incredibly, I guess, powerful. Run out of steam on that, sorry.
0: No, no, I think that's, that's fine. What I'm curious about is, was this like an intentional, like your parents were like, oh, there's John over there. Let's give them a, a, a book that'll really open their little mind. Or was this just like an accidental something that just like came into your hands kind of thing?
1: So what actually happened was, was we were in the bookstore and I picked up a book and it was quite thick. And my mom said, you'll never get all through that. And so I put that book down and I looked for the thickest book in the science fiction section I could find, and that was Red Mars. And then my mom claimed she read it to check it, but she hadn't.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, oh. can, I can only <laughs> that's, imagine. That's, that's a nice story. She, yeah. I can only imagine how she felt when she eventually looked through it, realized what you had been reading. Yeah, it's, quite, it's pretty hefty. It's like 500 something pages, right? It's pretty hefty. Yeah,
2: if I ever get the, the spark to read big fiction again, I might have to check it out. Thanks. So
0: was Red Mars the primary inspiration for your views on democracy and direct democracy and consensus? And, or were there like any other like really notable inspirations could be something you read could also be like a person you met or an org that you worked with or anything.
1: So with Harmony, actually, a lot of the inspiration comes from organizations like the Black Panthers, but also the inside of my own head. I'm plural. So I... There's multiple identities in me and how I I operate in the world is by consensus. So it's really natural and normal to me. I'm not terribly comfortable talking on this topic, but I'm okay with mentioning it. That's essentially what brought me to consensus as a thing. And also just in my community, we generally make decisions by consensus. And I mean, in my, my close friend community, we don't vote on things. Nobody makes, takes straw polls. We just, you decide things by consensus. So I feel like it's the natural order for humans, and that capitalism has dragged us quite forcibly away from that, in the same way that it's it's established this sense that we can't trust one another. As you mentioned earlier, there's a definite concerted effort to make people not trust each other, and that, that's that's with good cause. Because from the perspective of, of, of capitalism, if you imagine it as a self-regulating entity for a moment, if it wants to live, it has to keep the gift economy of, of human labor underneath it in check. And that's all the things we do for one another without being paid or the unpaid labor, especially women's unpaid labor, the social labor, the emotional labor, to an extent sexual labor as well between people. All that stuff underpins the capitalist economy and all that stuff depends on trust between individuals. But if individuals trust each other too much, then they start to see that they don't need capitalist markets. The capitalist market is a parasite on top of that, that natural gift economy that humans establish. And it's there so that the rich can have their own very slightly different gift economy.
2: And on top of that, there's an incredible uh, sort of domination of the historical narrative by capitalism, especially with that trust in the sense that a lot of it has been rewritten and rephrased and historiology has been sort of altered in a way to make it seem like there never was that trust. Or that trust was a sort of primitive thing that was evolved out when societies became bigger than what when when that's, that's really not true. And um, what are your kind of thoughts on the effects capitalism has had on history and trust in history?
1: I think because the market system itself is a low trust system. So you only need markets if you don't trust each other. It's the same with barter. People often think of barter as like a really great system. But the truth is is barter is, is again a low trust system because if you trusted each other then you wouldn't need to immediately exchange goods. If you look at gift economies, Those are high trust systems because you can trust that you can rely on other people in your community to pay it forward later. If you look at at economies before capitalism arrived, if you look at pre-industrial economies, the artisan economy particularly, that was a gift economy. And it functioned not by a barter system, as people often think, but by people trusting in each other to do work in the future so the blacksmith dave was good for whatever you needed whatever he needed from you because he was the blacksmith he was going to be doing a ton of work he was obviously rich so there was no need for even an iou if he asked you for help you would just give it because later he would shoe your horse for you and gold played a role in it and and money played a role in it but it played a, a, a secondary role so if you didn't trust someone then you paid them
0: Yeah. And that goes back to the sort of origins of agrarian society, because a lot of the early gift economies of the type that you're talking about were based on the fact that farmers and agriculturalists produced goods at different times. And so uh, somebody is suddenly harvesting all their green beans. Well, they're the one being generous right now. Uh, Somebody else just got a huge amount of leather finished tanning. Well, they're the one being generous right now. And uh, it was just sort of like a pass it around based on who has the excess of stuff right now. And uh, it makes sense when you think about the way these systems work, (laughs) actually. (laughs) You know, that like, we. oh, well, I've got an excess of stuff right now because these systems tend to not produce for a long time and then suddenly overproduce. That works better when people trust each other and take care of each other in a lot of ways, than this sort of like capitalist, I have to make money off of the overproduction, or else I can't share it kind of mentality that we see so much now.
1: I think that capitalism arose to answer the the, problem that feudalism created, which was that the people the ruling class had the power on paper. So they had the God given right to do whatever they wanted. But in physical terms, they couldn't, they actually have very limited power. Because most of the economy wasn't accessible to them, because most of the economy was isolated away from them and was people doing for each other in their community. The introduction of the market shifted all of the ownership of the economy into the ruling class's hands, and then they give it back to you which actually gives them power. So neo-feudalism, which is capitalism, is basically just an answer to the question of how do we keep the power we've said we had? Then they persuaded everyone they had it, but they couldn't exercise it. And if you look at the introduction of fiat currency and things like that, these are all just steps on the path to doing that. The introduction of tax as as we have it today, for example, was just a means to give legitimacy to nation states and in turn to enable those centralised markets to dominate economics and to draw all of the wealth into the center and then control that wealth so that other people wouldn't be able to pursue their projects, their desires, their whims, but only the people with power could.
0: Well, and it seems like, uh, to me anyways... And April, you feel free to weigh in on this as well, that capitalism sort of provides a more pure form of the power. In feudalism, you had all of these agreements about who had the power and why. And if you really didn't like that agreement, it was somewhat easier to call it into question in certain respects, whereas money is this thing that kind of can't be questioned. You're not really allowed to ask questions of someone's money. The money itself is pure and absolute and without morality unto itself or at least that's the sort of capitalist vision of how this works.
2: Right. There was a sense of the corvée, which was the number of days a year, typically around a month or two months, that feudal workers had to labor unpaid for their for the lords above them. It was only a few months out of the year. It was removed and isolated from the rest of from the rest of life. There wasn't this absolute totalization and financialization. And you can see this going back all the way to the Man of the Communist Manifesto, where everything capitalism touches has to be controlled by it, has to be sublimated and assimilated into its processes.
0: Yeah, it's gnarly, it's absolute, and it's vicious, which is why, you know, we're all opposed to it here in this conversation
2: today. (laughs) A little bit, a little bit.
1: Tiny bit. I think capitalism was the first great outsourcing, and the first great outsourcing was trust. So, as you said, money has absolute purity in our system, if you like. It is the thing which everyone can trust. You can trust the money. You can trust the market. And the problem with that, of course, is that you can't. You can trust neither of those things, but we're told you can. And I think an awful lot of what's ill in our society arises from that disconnection, from that breaking of communal trust. And I think the only way that we rebuild that trust is fundamentally mutual aid. It's informing people that they can just give. There's no fear in giving. And once people People start doing it, I think it's quite addictive to be honest with you. I think it's the natural state of being is to give to other people. I think hoarding things is not healthy for human beings in a general sense. I think some human beings love it, of course, but I think that is an outgrowth of negativity. I think it's because our society is essentially sick that there are more people who want to hoard. In the same way that we often argue, certainly anarchists argue, that there is more crime in our society because our society is bad, and that if our society was less bad, i.e. less people were suffering, there would be less crime. While in the same way if more people trusted one another then there would be less deprivation less inequality and less suffering so i think that's that's why i'm, I'm very intent on focusing on building trust in communities and building interconnections between people and that's something i've always really been, been into even when i was even in my like my pleasure life i'm very into building connections i like to run dnd games with loads of strangers for example as a hobby bring people together throw them into a room together see what happens i think it's a really good way to live life And I think the more people who can freely trust one another, ultimately the better.
0: Yeah, I like that you brought up uh, role-playing games, actually. I think those can be really useful, and especially during the pandemic, they've been great for me. And I think uh, it's worth noting that, like, people don't necessarily just, like, hang out with, like, a group of friends that they like that much in our society a lot like we have a staggering amount of loneliness i know it's the same in the uk from reading studies about issues over there like a lot of people here and there are reporting you know record low numbers of friendships including some people saying they have no close friends at all a a, you know increasingly distressing numbers of people saying such things Uh, i think it's really great to exercise organizing or hobbies or both that brings together groups of people in excess of three, four, five, or six, seven, eight people. Because when you're around a certain number of people, and you realize that all of these people are in effect, your allies, as in they share common goals, beliefs, and you can trust them. That's a really powerful feeling that can really change the way people feel about society and humanity as a whole. Absolutely. So I wanted to ask you about forming a third party in the UK. Because this is uh, something here in the US, forming a third party is sort of an endeavor of madness. It's slightly less so where you are in terms of like a third party can be more easily sort of recognized and given acknowledgement you are not constrained to two parties. However, something we like to talk about on this show is that it's obvious that simply having more parties doesn't necessarily fix all the problems with the control of power and gatekeeping of that power, et cetera. So how hard is it to form a brand new political entity of this type where you are? What sort of steps did you have to take to start getting recognition like legally and from the government
1: So technically in the UK, there are no necessary steps for a political party to form. It's essentially you can declare yourself a political party and you are one, but you can't run candidates in that state. So you have to go to a body called the Electoral Commission and get permission from them. Authorization, it's called, to stand candidates. And then you can put your party marks next to your candidate's name on the ballot paper. If you don't do that, you can't put your marks on the paper. And of course, independents suffer from name recognition problems. So it's very hard to break through that way. That does mean spending, I think it was £180. So the barrier is basically, do you have £180 and are you two people or more? Um, So the barrier isn't that great. I know in the US, the barrier is extraordinary because of the complexity of trying to set up in all of the different states. It was something I looked into when I was starting Harmony because I was like, oh, how hard would this be in America? So I have a a small inkling from looking across and going, what?
0: Yeah, it's bad here. You pretty much need to pick one state to focus on to start any kind of realistic political party and build it there first. And then you can try to like move it out. Like the most notable example of something like that would probably be Working Families Party here, which has been successful enough and done some good things.
2: New York is kind of a special case in that it still has legalized fusion voting where multiple parties can nominate one candidate. The success of the Working Families Party is in large part due to the fusion ticket system which so many other states don't have. Yeah. The only other kind of party that I can think of would be the Vermont Progressive Party which has single digits in the Vermont Upper House and like 15 10 or 15 in the Vermont Lower House. But Vermont is a very small state so it'd be it's it's, e- it's easier to get a kind of party going. But yeah, third parties are very, very, very hard to get off the ground in the United States.
0: Yeah, and well, I'm glad you mentioned that fusion ballot because like I said, you kind of have to pick one state where you have you can get a foothold and start there. Like Working Families Party is really important in Georgia now and some other states, but they could only get to that level by starting in a state where they could actually be heard. You know? <laughs> And even then, super long uphill battle. So getting to the point of a national party here, it's like a, that's like an impossible nightmare.
1: <laughs> I, I, as I say, I remember looking it up and I was astonished at like the hoops in different states being diff- so different. So you essentially have to have the expertise. If you wanted to start a party and assail all the states simultaneously, you would need to have such expertise in your party to start with that you, I mean, you couldn't because they would all go to pre-existing parties. All of the talent would be hoovered up by the pre-existing parties already, which of course I'm pretty sure is what happens. And it's actually the real barrier to starting a large-scale party because if you are a career political, whether that's polling or any other area of politics, then you're going to go where your career can actually grow. You're not going to go to a small party and cross your fingers.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, that was essentially like what happened and Slash is still going on with the MPP movement for People's Party here. The leading names, most notably uh, Nita Turner, that were originally associated with that have already moved on and gone back to being Democrats because Dina Turner wants to win an election that's coming up right now. She's not going to wait years and years for this uh, movement for a People's Party thing to maybe pan out or not. I'm not necessarily trying to defend Nina Turner hundred percent. I'm just saying from a practical perspective, she wants to win this election. So she went back to a party that can win. And, uh, yeah, like, I, I think, Even taking aside any issues with the ideas or organizing behind MPP, or even putting into context some of the great organizing, because we talked to a few MPP organizers that were phenomenal, there was really no chance because of what you just said, that brain drain. Just forming a national party here is just impossible. (laughs) America sucks. (laughs) well that's exciting for you that it's not so hard there i'm certainly jealous (laughs) Uh, i mean the
1: barriers the barriers here are just different there are still barriers but like sure the, the the main barrier that we're facing is the media who are just not interested they have no interest in us whatsoever and it's a bit ridiculous on paper because the party was founded by a disabled person who has been locked in their house for nearly 400 days and has not met any of the people in question. And somehow these people have joined this party, right? Now that, that to me, on paper is a story. If I was a journalist, I'd be like, I think people would want to read that. But there's just, there's very limited interest. The only interest we've had is from a journalist who I've happened to become a little bit friendly with, who did a story for us and is interested in the party. But otherwise, that we would have had no coverage at all by now. Whereas as other parties that are started by people with more money, shall we say, can immediately on as soon as they land on, on their feet on the ground they have media attention because they have networks around them already a great example of this recently is um, the Northern Independence Party which started up about five months after us but their founder is a anthropologist and has connections therefore I didn't, I, I am nobody literally I live in poverty I'm not employed I have no money Harmony was started with 40 quid and hope Nip was started with money and they've spent money immediately Whereas we couldn't, we had to start building up. And so we've decided to have a hard launch further down the line. But they've run into a different sort of problem, right? So they've got all the media attention, but they, they don't have any of the expertise because they haven't had enough time. So they're immediately running into problems where they have too many fires and not enough firefighters. And so the, the barriers just come up differently. So in their case, the media have gone, yes, we'll give you time because you've spent money and, and you've done all the right things, but we're still hostile to you. So it's created the sense in their party that everyone is hostile to them. And that, of course, just starts even more fires because they're constantly in the defensive mode. They don't listen to criticism from the left as well. They ignore the criticism from the left. And just recently, there's been a slowly emerging scandal with some of their members claimed that their founder was being ableist on their Discord and they've been chucked out of the party and the party's threatening them with legal action.
0: Wow, that's... Unfortunately, too predictable, but extremely messed up. You know, whistleblowers are just all too often punished, which is very unfortunate. Well, let's try to uh, end on a positive note, though. John, let's say somebody's been listening to this. They think, well, this John comrade, they seem pretty legit. They seem all right. How do they do something to get involved with Harmony, even if maybe they're not in the UK?
1: So it's it's really easy to get involved with harmony. We we don't allow people from outside the UK to directly participate in our democracy because fairly obvious reasons. It's just sure. it's, yeah. it's overcomplicated. <laughs> but people can come and get involved all the same. We're going to be setting up More outreach internationally in the future because it's just not something we're focused on at the moment. But people are welcome to come join in on the moot, which is the you know the public areas of the moot. If you like the general area, it's just open. People can just walk in and have a look if they want. We use Mattermost. I don't know if you've heard of that as our self-hosted communications hub. It's very similar to Discord. Okay.
0: Yeah.
2: Nice, nice.
0: And if somebody wants to like uh, follow you on Twitter, toss you money, go to the website and see that. What are, what are some of the best links or, or things to follow or places to go, etc.?
1: So the Twitter account for the Harmony Party is at Harmony Party UK. Mine is at the Dreetship, which is hard to spell. D-R-Y-H-T-S-C-I-P-E. And the website is uh, HarmonyParty.org.uk. You can donate on the uh, Give page. Um, at the moment, we're only taking donations via PayPal because banking has been an absolute nightmare during a pandemic. <laughs> Relatable. Uh, we, we went to one bank and they said it'll be 12 weeks. And then 15 weeks later, they hadn't got back to us. So that was exciting.
0: Yeah, we've been dealing with some issues sort of along those lines this year. So I can relate. Just trying to file paperwork and do things. And, you know, every government agency is running like seven weeks behind. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, John, this was a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about Harmony Party UK and a little bit about, you know, your own beliefs and the things that inspire you and inspired the party, etc. And uh, just, you know, really glad to have you and have you for this chat.
1: Thank you very, very much for having me on. It's been really interesting and fun talking to you.
2: Yeah, it's been wonderful. A lot of good ideas. I really hope that the party goes somewhere, especially in the kind of political climate that uh, the UK is in right now. It really make like, a lot of good.
0: Yeah. Again, all those links will be in the description, as always, for Harmony Party UK. John was here, more or less the founder, as I understand, right? Like, you're, you are the founder.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm the founder. Yeah. And, uh,
0: yeah. Uh, I know you don't probably want to brag on yourself too much because you're an anarchist, but I'm going to brag on you and say, you're the founder. <laughs> <laughs> this is this. <laughs>
1: um, yeah. I'm, t- I'm, t- I'm actually terrible at taking compliments, but...
0: Uh, But yes, John, the founder of Harmony Party UK, we appreciate your time so much. We are Not Safe for Wonks at NSF Wonks on Twitter. If you don't follow us on Twitter, there's always good stuff going on over there. Patreon.com slash Not Safe if you want to donate. We are 100% independent media, entirely funded by listeners like you, and we appreciate every dollar. Thank you so much, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. See ya.